You're listening to the Small Moves Podcast. Small steps for big progress. With your host, Jason Hertzberger. Your next step starts now. This is episode 10 of the Small Moves Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Hertzberger. Thanks for listening to me this week. Today, I'm interviewing Azul Taronas. Azul is an author's coach uh, based out of Lisbon, at least at the moment, based out of Lisbon. We'll get into why I say at the moment uh, during the interview. But Azul is a really interesting guy. He is a former classroom teacher in the U.S. and a former administrator in the school system here. And he had a dream of writing a book and had that dream for the longest time um, and just never really acted on it. And he ended up going to a one-day business breakthrough event in San Diego with Pat Flynn and Chris Ducker. Um, if you're at all familiar with the online business space, uh, those two names should be commonplace for you. Um, if not, I'll link to both of their pages in the show notes. Uh, two really incredible guys. Anyway, uh, Azul went there with the idea of trying to come up with a business breakthrough, but he didn't have a business. He didn't have a product. He didn't really have any anything um, outside of an idea for a book. So uh, we get into it in the interview, but uh, something really interesting was that not having a product and not having a business going into a business breakthrough event uh, where they basically just sort of sit you down and grill you and test your business idea, um, having none of them. And the only thing he had was an idea for a book. Um, what he decided to do was about 30 days out from the event, he decided to finally write his book in 30 days and get it published in under 30 days before the event. Uh, that was, that was a pretty, pretty incredible rush. I'm sure for him, uh, we're going to get into the details of how he did that, why he did that. Um, his career as a coach now where he coaches other authors about the process of writing their books and getting their story out is really a phenomenal service and a really great message for people that, think that they may have a story to tell, but just don't really know how to do it. Um, Azul gave a TED Talk at the TEDx conference in Santa Domingo a little over a year ago in 2016. And that's actually how I initially came across Azul was I stumbled across his TED Talk. Uh, the topic sort of rung, rung with me, so it always kind of stuck in my craw. And then I ended up being a part of a Facebook group uh, associated with the aforementioned Pat Flynn. And uh, Azul is a member of that group because apparently he was a coach that helped uh, Pat Flynn put out his uh, multiple books that are on Amazon right now. I was pretty impressed by his TED talk and just his general demeanor. I looked into his background and he's just really got a really interesting past that sort of brought him to where he is right now. This is a fascinating interview. I really enjoyed kind of getting into Azul's process and his life and sort of what has brought him to where he is right now. And even more interesting as it applies to me personally, pardon the, the selfishness of that, but um, where he's going in the future, geographically where he's going in the future. He is a nomad per se um, and likes to sort of hop around the globe. And, you know, he and his partner 
and the kids, they tend to hop around the globe a bit. And that's a, that's something that, as you know, if you've been listening to the show up to this point, something that's thoroughly fascinating and something that my wife and I are looking forward to doing ourselves. So we, we enjoy talking about that a little bit toward the end of the conversation. But I don't want to give too much of too much more of it away uh, because I really enjoyed this conversation. So without further ado, I bring you Azul Tarones. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire, and you're listening to the Small Moves Podcast, small steps for big progress. Let's prepare to ignite. Hey, Azul, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Jason. No problem. Um, As I was mentioning in the intro, you are a former teacher and you're also an author of a book. Um, The book is The Art of the Art of Apprenticeship. Um, Tell me, give me a little bit of background and give the audience a little bit of background about sort of the how how long were you a teacher then converted to an author or did you author the book or any other books, I guess, um, prior to changing over to what you do now? Like, were you a teacher while writing books or were, did the book sort of come from your previous experiences as a teacher? That's a great question. So about three and a half years ago, I really wanted to start figuring out what I could do with my life after teaching because 22 years is a long time to commit and my own children will be graduate. We're graduating high school soon at the time, and was thinking, I'm really admiring these online entrepreneurs. I don't really know how they make their money. Some of it doesn't seem legit, but nonetheless, I know that there are some great people out there who are doing it, saying that you can do it too. So um, I started to pay more attention to people that I cared about. Uh, Chris Gillibeau, um mm-hmm. wrote uh, the Hundred Dollar Startup, was one of them. I love that book. That was one of my favorite books early on when I first started investigating this kind of stuff myself. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I went to a talk that uh, Chris was giving where he was doing a book signing in La Jolla, California. And I met him and talked to him. And I was just inspired that he, he that he could write a book. He, that he, he, he says anybody could write a book. And I was like, that's so cool. Um, so he was an, an inspiration. Just meeting him and talking with him briefly really got me going. And I had been listening to Pat Flynn. I just didn't know exactly what I could do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, same problem, I was, yeah. yeah, I was searching, but I didn't really know exactly what I would do. So I had always wanted to write a book. I've taught writing for a lot of years and to young people and published their books since 2008. But I never really did it myself. I think a lot of it was just the fear of putting my stuff out there. Like most authors have, I just decided um, I have to do this. And so I got some you know, into a program. I started writing a book, um, but I really didn't have a reason to be doing this because I didn't know what my business would be. So the art of apprenticeship was sort of my journey to figure out, could I really leap from education, find someone to mentor me, start writing or doing something new, and then make a living doing what I love? That was the premise of the whole book, but could I do it? That was, the, that was what I wanted to know is, could I really do this? Sure. And that's, that's really what I did is I signed up for Pat Flynn and Chris Ducker as one business breakthrough in San Diego, um, where they would put entrepreneurs on a hot seat and say, Hey, put your business here. We'll critique you, give you 15 minutes of our time to help your business grow. Well, I signed up for it, but I didn't have a business. Remember, I was still just trying to learn, <laughs> sure. but I was so eager. I bought it and the spot, which 20 people was amazing that I, w- I was able to get a spot. But then I realized 
I don't have anything to share. I don't have anything to talk about. <laughs> not a thing. Not a website. Nothing. So I said, I, I'm committed to writing this book. So I'm just going to finish it before I show up. So I wrote the book in 30 days and showed up. I just saw in my Facebook feed was me going and saying, I finished the book. I'm going to Chris and Pat's thing. And all I did is decide is I'm going to share that I wrote this book about changing my life, trying to find a mentor and, and do what I love. So that was really how I became an author by showing up to something that I didn't know what I was doing. And author 30, 30 yeah. days out, 30, 30 days, days out at that. Good Lord. Wow. So I had no other choice but to finish because <laughs> what am I going to say? I really was going to write a book, but I didn't, that didn't sound right. So, uh, it was, really, I, I know what their, I know what their first critique would have been. Well, write the book and then come it. back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it would have been a no brainer. Right. But the, the amazing thing was, is because I've been able to stand in front of people and tell a story, I had no problem speaking and they were captivated by this idea that I could do this in such a short period of time. And they started throwing all these ideas and I didn't know what this, how could this be a business? You know, they, so that essentially my writing career started with more of a leap into the fire than, Oh, I think I'll try writing. Cause I wasn't trying to make money from this book though. You know, I learned a lot about that afterwards. Sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah, no, I, and, um, the, my, my, my wife is a teacher as well. My wife, Carrie, she, and, uh, she was, she was interviewed on episode one of the podcast. So yeah, the, the audience is is familiar with her at this point. Um, she, she's sort of had a similar road where she, she also taught writing. She was a language arts teacher, um, also worked, did a lot in the, uh, the special ed field, but staying sort of within the language arts area. And, um, she, now she's, now she's got her own independent online business that she just launched last week herself. Um, so she, you know, she has talked a lot about trying to figure out ways to convey that information and that skill set that she has into a way that's more, more, should I say, appealing to adults and parents because really when, when it, when it comes to, when it comes to being a teacher, let's face it, the kids only have so much choice, if any at all, really. Um, so get, getting the information in the hands of people who are parents of children and they want to work, you know, they want to try and do the things that, that will benefit their kids. You really need to be able to convey that value, not just as, you know, not just being a great teacher for the kids, but you have to be able to convey it to the parents. I'm sure that's probably something that having a book does I'm assuming, assuming that it's assuming that the topic of the book is solid and it's attractive to parents and the information is spot on. So you have to know your stuff. Obviously I'm sure that's what you coach your people on. It's like, don't, don't just sort of pick a topic out of thin air. It has to be something where you have some expertise. Well, and I think one of the things you can do is decide what is the, this book for, what do I want this book to do for me? Because I wasn't saying I was an expert in my field because I, w I wasn't writing about education. I didn't really want to write about education. I didn't want to become a career educator in writing books and write books for, you know, some agency or, you know, I, I wanted to really leap out of education but use my skills. So I was taking a risk by putting myself out there and saying, these are the things I've used to really help me grow and change. Um, so I, I think it depends. I think the purpose is behind it. I, I'm not trying to be an expert. 
I'm trying to just share what I know and think. So I think that's the difference between a book that requires an educational background versus a book that requires your personal background. Um, sure. You know, and I think that a lot, and anybody could really share information that could change the world if they share what they know, you know, not just information, but like their true self. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And that that's, and that perspective actually is one of the things that really attracted me to your book and you initially, um, is that's, if you really think about it and if the audience thinks about it, that's kind of the basis behind my website and this podcast in the first place, which is small moves being, you know, this is every, everything in the world that we're trying to work towards is an incremental slog that takes step after step after step along the way. You're never really per se an expert because there's always something else to learn. So the, the, sh the show is all about just trying to figure out, okay, having the giant grandiose goal is fantastic. But like for one of the examples that I've, that I've mentioned before is one of my favorite uh, podcasts that I listen to is the Tim Ferriss show. Um, he interviews people that are, in the stratosphere compared to anyone that I've had a chance to come across in my life. He interviews Arnold Schwarzenegger, Tony Robbins, you know, and the like. And it's, it got to the point after maybe about a year, year and a half of listening to his show, it occurred to me, it's like, wait a second. Th these are cool stories. This is great information to hear, but you know what? There's nothing I have in relations to Peter Thiel. Or to Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like, there's nothing that, there's no dotted line connection that I can draw from where I am to where they are. It's so far ahead. They're so far ahead. And it's great to see, like, it is great to see those examples, but the path from here to there is like, I don't want to know how Arnold Schwarzenegger became a megastar and became the governor of California. I want to know how he built a concrete business, which is actually what made him a millionaire. Before he ever picked up a picked up a barbell or stepped onto a movie set, that's the step. That's the step that I'm curious about because that's the part. But that's the part that's not really spent. A lot of people don't really spend a lot of time in that area because it's not sexy. It doesn't sell headlines. It doesn't sell. It's not clickbait. It's not particularly interesting for most people. But that's where most people are. Um, you know. So I think. I mean, one one of the things I loved about being married to a teacher, I have something of a soft spot. So but the, one of the things that I loved about your your TED Talk is the ability to listen to, let's just say it, unconventional sources of information. In your case, kids. As mind-numbingly mind simple as that sounds, and that's the point that you were sort of making in your talk, is that, hey, this is a school. Who gets serviced in schools? Children. Who should we ask about the service of the school? Well, children, of course. Well, no, that's actually – you actually pointed out that that's actually tr not correct. People don't listen to the children because they think that they're immature. They think that they're stupid. They think that they're silly. They don't think that they have valuable information to contribute when it comes to the general structure of their own education. And I think you really sort of pointed out how that's not true. Like, if you wouldn't mind, I know it's sort of double dipping a little bit into your TED talk, but would you mind going into that a little bit? Um, because I know there's a lot of people that are listening that have kids that have sort of been coming to the realization 
that you know they're the way the school systems are set up currently maybe not be do may not be doing the greatest good for for kids today based on where the economy is now and where it's going as compared to the industrial revolution system that was built 120 years ago um if you wouldn't mind touching base about that about sort of what 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 was the experience that you had sort of taking a pause as a teacher and actually listening to feedback from kids about what makes good teachers? Yeah, of course. So what I observed was that it wasn't that I was this great teacher. In fact, that's more of the reason I kept asking the question for 22 years is because I don't think I ever arrived. But what I did notice is that there's a slight difference between a good teacher and a great teacher. The difference really is a great teacher asks. And so if a teacher tells me they're great, I said, good, show me the proof that you've been asking kids what will make you great. Because if you just think you're a great teacher and the PTA or the school districts have awarded you, fantastic. But keep asking so that you become great. Because the difference really is that question being asked over and over. Um, and the premise that I really have is that most people spend so much time trying to fix education. And I, I was inspired by Seth Godin, who created a manifesto about stop stealing dreams. And he really wanted people to get focused on education in a simple way. And I found out that Seth Godin was going to be talking in Tribeca in New York. And I saw that he was giving a discounted tickets that were normally for CEOs to nonprofits. And I grabbed the ticket and went with the hopes to ask him one question, which is what would you do, Seth, if you could tell me or any educator what they can do to make the biggest difference? And he said, I said, well, what I would say is ask, what is this for? What is this we're doing for? And I really was profoundly impacted by that because it was a simple question. And I've been asking this simple question, what will make a good teacher great for so long that I had forgotten that I was doing it and how powerful that simple question could transform the thinking. So if I couldn't change a system, I could change me. I could imitate great teachers because kids will tell me every year. There, there's no, it's an endless resource of kids. Um, and the things that they told me were profoundly impactful. Um, but I wouldn't have thought of it on my own. And as you mentioned, we have a system that basically doesn't ask kids their opinion. And if we do, it's cursory, right? Um, it's punitive. It's like to get the teacher to show how good a school is or isn't. But it really isn't in the effort to improve the school. It's an effort to either show evidence. So yeah. I, I was thinking, you know, why don't I just figure out why? And, that, and in the TED Talk, I talk a lot about the fact that we don't listen because we're never taught this. We're not a school or an institution that values listening, even though people on the other end of this podcast are listening. We don't teach it and we don't systematize it. We, we offer zero years of formal listening instruction and yet we claim we're really good at it. Um, I mean, we have no, we have no evidence this is true. We just think we are. Um, be like saying I'm a great writer, but I've never been taught to write and I'm really good at it. Well, show me what you've written. Well, I don't really write, but I know I'm really good at it. Um, it's just sort of that sort of way, you know, and it's sort of crazy. So my whole premise is that we could change a system if we change one teacher listening to a classroom of students 
and that teacher then listening to all of their classes of students and maybe their peer across the hallway saying, I'm going to ask my kids what would make me great too. Um, and then affecting a grade level and a school and then multiple schools. I have a feeling that if we keep doing this simple task, we could really transform from the inside out. So that's my goal. That was my whole point. Uh, and trying to get people, if they would just do this one thing, maybe we can make a difference. Sure. Now, for, now from that perspective, t- turning that around for a second, obviously that that's the case when it sort of finally hit you when you were listening to the students. But right now, obviously you're, you're not, you're no longer a classroom teacher now, correct? Correct. So I, I guess, you know, my, my question for that is from where you are now in your current at your with your current role and just so because i haven't really gotten too much into that i got into it a little bit in the introduction but you are a coach and you work with others that are looking to write books correct from from that perspective where are sort of where are you on that challenge on that journey like what are you what are you doing to sort of continue sort of continue that fight i guess from where you are now yeah. So I don't think it's my mission necessarily to pursue the, the classroom for, for 40 years. Um, I think I was always a teacher that really thought I would do something different, but 22 years later was still doing it. Not because I didn't value it. I think I just got way more from the kids than they ever got from me. So um, really, you know, my me, service me- was, you know, limiting compared to what I got in return. Got it. Let me, let me stop you there with a question. What, why did you become a teacher in the first place? Was it something that hit you early on? It's like, Oh, I want to be a teacher and you went to school for education and you got a master's in education and then you just went into the school system or did you stumble into it later in college or later in life? Like how did you become a teacher? (laughs) I I don't have an education degree. that little that little snickers the response you get from most people that are teachers it's really funny. <laughs> well, I don't have a degree in education, and I purposely didn't get one. Um, I I started out really um, having two degrees that probably are terminal, meaning that there's no potential career behind them. I have an undergrad in world arts and cultural theater from UCLA and a master's in native American film studies from UCLA. I, I had no intent to be a teacher. Wow. I was okay, yeah. never looking to teach. Uh, I'm dyslexic. School was super hard for me. I was not thinking that I wanted to be back in schools for the rest of my life. Um, and I had worked in film and television. That's really where I was doing my work. And so uh, I, I was going to be a professor, then realized how uninteresting I probably would be because many of my colleagues were, and I didn't want to be that. So um, I decided not to be academic, finished with the master's. And was in between jobs at a studio and saw an ad at the UCLA board that they needed a teacher. I had been directing children's theater and I said, "Hmm, this is probably similar to working with kids in a classroom. Uh, They need somebody who was sort of bilingual at the time. And I applied for the job. I interviewed, they said the teacher quit Uh, after a month. We need a teacher. You're it. So I started teaching the next day, never teaching a day of my life before. So, wow. Um, I think it was my acting skills that convinced them that I could do this, not so much my teaching skills, because I had no teaching <laughs> experience. Um, 
So it wasn't like this, this one, and I would be lying if I said, oh, and I got there and it was the best thing ever. It wasn't, it was horrible. I mean, I worked in inner city LA. We had no air conditioning, just chalkboards. There were no computers, no, not even a phone in the room. Um, you had to sleep on room at the end of the day. 94, I think that was the year. No, no, you know, we swept our room and cleaned off our chalkboards in the day. The textbooks were from 1950s. Uh, it was, it was sort of like survival. But I got a lot out of it. I got a lot out of the kids, but I just didn't. They said, you have to go back to get this credential thing. And I said, well, are you going to pay for this? They're like, absolutely not. I'm like, well, I was lecturing at a college just two months before this. And now I have to teach little people I need to get an advanced degree. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I I actually left for a while and I I got another job um, working as a director of marketing for a design firm. And uh, I actually kind of really missed the kids. So I ended up going back and... That's where I just realized I was learning more from young people than I was in other places. So that's my indirect response. And I, I, I became a principal as well. I was a principal for many years. Um, you know, I taught in the university system. But what I, I never wanted a degree, even though I have enough to have two other master's degree, like shy of five, five credits, um, to the chagrin of my advisor, like, why? You should just get the master's in educational administration, the master's in multicultural education. I said, why? How many letters after my name do you, do I need? Do I need? Um, sure. So I just felt like education was always this system, this hoop, and I just always bucked the system. So I d- was a principal and all these things without, you know, a formal official degree, just the credential I needed to do my work. Which by the way is interesting because my, the, the lion's share of the, the, the opinions that people have of the educational system as it is right now is if you're not, you mentioned about being someone that bucks the system rising to the position of a principal in that system is rare based on just based on my experience from from people that I've talked to that know the educational system that to get to that point you pretty much just have to toe the line more like sit down shut up and do what comes down from the state state board and that's about it so it's it's interesting that you were able to sort of work work around that a little bit like can you talk about that a little bit like how how were how are there examples of situations where you did you did what say the state board required in effectively in return for being able to also do these other things that allowed you to excel in that area? Like what can you think of some examples of situations like that? Well, I was I never really thought the principalship was for me, but a counselor that I was working with when I was a teacher said, look, you've been talking a lot about what this principal and what they can and can't do. Either you need to do something about it or stop talking about it. So that's how I got my principal certificate. I just got, I didn't like her challenge. So I, <laughs> I liked her, but she kind of, you know, she was right. Um, but uh, I really, from the moment I got into it, didn't like it because it was such a, I was solving problems I didn't create. There was no creativity to it. At least in my mind, the system wouldn't allow me to change very much. So I constantly didn't worry about getting fired, um, which and means, it sounds it sounds like you came you came from a creative background, so that was probably more frustrating for you than it was for others. I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. So th- I allowed myself to be creative where it was. But the thing is, when I was trying to leave, being the you know when I got into a big high school in Texas, it was you know these mega schools. There are four thousand kids. I was a, a grade level principal. City. Grade level principal for about a hundred, you know, a thousand kids. 
I was like, this is not for me. I, I don't, I don't want to be the judge and jury for kids when they do something wrong in a classroom and kick them out and suspend them. And like, that was mainly your role when you're in a big school. Sure. <clears throat> so, um, basically, uh, I got a reputation for making things happen, just not in the way that anyone would expect. And the superintendent called me and said, look, we want you to apply for this position, uh, to be a principal of this middle school. And I said, I really don't know if I want to do this. He said, look, just consider it. So I did, and I went to the interview, and uh, they offered me the position to be a principal. And I, before I said yes, I said to the superintendent, look, I, I have a question for you because I, I'm a little confused. Like, there's people here in this district who've been teaching uh, or been a principal longer than I've been even teaching. Why would you choose someone who could turn around the school? Essentially, it was a failing school that was really going to affect the district's, quote, rating. Why would you want me, who has no experience, to do things here that you couldn't find someone else doing they would know how to do things and fix it. He's like, well, I'm hoping you'll do something different. I don't want to hire somebody who would do the things that I would expect. I'm hoping that you'll do things that I wouldn't because that's what this school needs. I said, oh, I can promise you that. <laughs> um, I won't do the thing you expected. Um, yeah, I, I was the, – the where you were going with that, I was, I was fully expecting him to say something along the lines of, well, because we've tried everything else and nothing else has worked. So what the hell, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, they had a principal there, you know, who had been there for nine years and was just living out retirement and living the school. And, you know, to their credit, like it's by the time you've been doing it for 30 years, you're just barely surviving, I would think. Sure. So it doesn't mean there's plenty of principals who were doing it 25 years and were happy as could be. Uh, it just wasn't me. Um, so... I basically said, yes, I can do this. I'll go in there and I can help turn this school around. Um, I, I wasn't going to commit forever, but I, I knew I could do it. And I did. I turned it around from a low-performing school to recognize in, the, in two years. Um, it was a lot of work. It was painful. But it was, it, it was something I could do because it, he didn't expect me to do things the way everyone else would. So that was freeing. That was easy in that regard. Um, so I, I think in relationship to all these small moves, how am I impacting the world if I've left education? Well, because my job now is to go tell people and inspect people at the higher level to start thinking differently. Um, the book I'm working on is about what makes a good teacher great, about the 26,000 quotes and responses I've collected from this question over the last 22 years to show people what kids have said will really make a difference. And I think I can make a bigger impact sharing to a bigger community than just 28 kids, you know, for 55 minutes and the bell rings or however it works, you know. Um, so my job is to be, to be able to do things. And because, because of the book I wrote, um, I was invited to speak on a TED stage because I had some, some meaningful thing to say. Uh, I've been asked to keynote. I've been asked to lead international heads of school in their thinking around what's next for education. But if I wouldn't have taken that step writing a book, I wouldn't have put myself out there. I would still probably be doing education, but impacting smaller amounts of people. And that's that's because of the first book, The Art that's of Apprenticeship. Of Correct. Gotcha. So, um, this new book you said that you're working on right now, um, do you have a target release date for that book yet? Yeah, it's 2018, um, hopefully the fall. Um, I've been working on it for a while, and it has been a little bit of a challenge for me because – I have the same fears and doubts that everyone has who writes a book, <laughs> all my coaching clients, that it's so easy for me to get in my own head. Um, but um, this is a book that means a lot to me, and I, I think I don't want to make it 
so that the kid's voice isn't heard. But the truth is, um, the TED Talk was really my proof that this was a worthy cause, right? Topic, so sure. I, I kind of did it the opposite way. Let me, sh- let me see if this topic resonates. Because it was not at an education conference. It was at a mindfulness conference in Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic. You know, like it wasn't specifically for educators. If I could get that audience to be moved and subsequently grow a message, then it would definitely be worthy of a book. Even though I've had people tell me that would be a great book, I still wrestled with the doubt that I had of whether or not this would be good enough. Sure. Yeah. So for for people, so for the people that you work with through your co- through your coaching practice that are that are trying to get uh, that are trying to write a book themselves like what would you say like for somebody where where do you where would you sort of fall on the process of somebody that's looking to write a book like for example the the that idea has crossed my brain every now and then i have no earthly idea what it would be or could be then there's people that either are have fiction just streaming through their head every day and every night. And that's, they live and breathe it. And, you know, they just need to sit down shut up with a white piece of paper and start writing. And then there's people with a similar sort of a thought process for nonfiction as well. Like at what point does somebody involve someone like you in the process? Um, that's a great question. So in different points, to be honest, um, I might get a referral to somebody who had a manuscript that they went to submit to somebody and the agent or the um, publisher said, this isn't quite ready yet, which means it's not really ready to be edited yet. It's not, it just isn't a complete story. It's not compelling yet. I've get, I've had those people come. I've had people who have just a good idea. They just don't know where to start. I've had people who've written many books and they show up to see me because this book is, is different. Um, uh, they know they have lots of books in them, so which one do they start with? Um, I've coached fiction, nonfiction, memoir, uh, even children's book authors. The, the thing about it is, is I because I spent so much year, so many years as an educator, those types of book don't worry me because it's all a process that I've worked through for over the years about how to help people come up with that really good idea mm-hmm. and be confident about it, and then coach them through execution. So. Um, I think it just depends. People have come all over the way, the, from all over the place. But the biggest thing I notice is helping people figure out their why before they start. Um, because most people won't finish their book uh, if their why isn't strong enough. Got it. Can you, can you give me some examples of clients? You, you can either choose to use their names or the names of their books or not. I guess it sort of depends on any conversations that you've had with them about their material in the past. But I mean, can you think of any examples of, of clients of yours that have either impacted your previous field education or um, something more, possibly more broad, more closer to the topic of the, of small moves, which is, taking you know more trying to break down complex things into simple incremental steps um can you think of any examples of of clients of yours that have worked on any topic similar to those well yeah i'll give you a really great example big and small um so i had a a a great young uh musician come to me named seth haynes and seth is uh, by trade, a classical musician who plays French horn. And um, he wanted to write a book. 
to help artists who got out of college thinking they wanted to be artists, they worked really hard, and now they graduated, and they thought they would just go audition for a symphony and have work. But that's just not how it works. Um, he wanted to help them not give up and start working at a car rental place or at a coffee house, but really use their skill as a musician and get more clients, get more bookings. Um, that was his premise because he's done it and he's done really well. And he's worked not very hard in the sense of like beating his brow. He's worked really smartly. So he wanted to write a book that would help make the biggest impact on people who were in the arts, particularly musicians. Um, so really it's the things that artists or particularly in his case, musicians didn't do, which is how do I do a cold email? How do I make an introduction? How do I build relationships? How do I know who to ask for help? Like very simple one step at a time processes. What does the email template look like? What do you mean email people? Like just email people like that really small, small moves. Um, so he wrote a book called break into the scene and it's really about that. How do I go from graduating and having this degree in art to getting asked to play in symphonies, to getting events uh, booked for events, being having other artists finding you as the connector. Uh, so his whole book is a simple premise, and they're small steps, invitations to take action that help artists do really well. So that's one example of somebody who had an idea, executed a book, built a course on it, and is able to help musicians basically grow and been asked to speak at colleges now, uh, his book is sometimes used as a coursework for musicians as they're getting ready to graduate. So he's making wow. a big impact with books like this, uh, oh, something great. he really cared about. So that's an example of somebody that I've helped, and they they are going on to do other things within their, their abilities to share that information. Um, and then, of course, there's bigger examples. Um, I would say another great client of mine is named... Uh, Dana Malstaff, and she is, well, she was at the time a content strategist. She worked for corporate, helping build a content strategy, and then she launched her own, helping entrepreneurs develop content strategy um, around, um, you know, small businesses, and she wanted to write a book about this, had a podcast about this whole topic, but as we did the extraction and working on her ideas, what we found was that she had a heart for a particular small niche, and that was moms moms who wanted to run a small business but just oh she know. she's the boss mom lady she's the boss mom <laughs> okay so, yeah no i'm well aware of the book yeah yeah dana Malsoff did not have bossmom.com before we started working she had a whole pro a whole an entirely different business but when we worked together i was able to ask questions when i noticed some things showing up about moms quite a bit and through the process, I saw this small piece of this bigger puzzle about moms. And I just kept asking her, I said, this seems really important. Tell me more about this. And she just, her, she lit up talking about how moms feel like they don't have enough love for their family and their business. They have to choose. And really love is infinite and love is bigger than that. Love doesn't have any, she just was glowing. I said, I think this is the area. Yeah. I think we should, I think we should shift topics a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) Well, she closed down her podcast. She changed her brand. She launched and she's in a huge movement. But that's what happens when you work with somebody and find the right message. Find the small thing that makes the biggest difference. It wasn't delivering content strategy. It was delivering a change in people's lives. So that's what I do. My job is to help them find that spark, find the thing that's easy to say. Because you were able to say, boss mom, that's, that's the thing we had to figure out. What is the thing? That's it. That's what the thing is. And it makes a, those things 
um, make a big difference because they have to be simple execution of a really complex idea, easily told to other people. In this case, it's a book, but you want people to share your book when they go to a restaurant or when they uh, are talking to a friend and go, oh, I just, they're able to share your ideas just as if it were you with just as much passion. And that's not easy to do because you probably read plenty of books that you probably don't remember much of the content. Um, and so that's, but that's my job. That's what I, that's why people show up and pay me actually a very large amount for because I help change their life, their business and the trajectory of their future because of those things. Got it. And spe- speaking, of, speaking of sort of be, being able to sort of uh, focus on twi- tweaking your message or tweaking your interest ever so slightly, like what would you say, what would you say was that, what would you say was that turning point for you when you decided Heart like full on. Okay, time to what? Where did the art of apprenticeship come from? Like that? Where did that spark say the thing that I want to learn is this? I want to write this book. I know it. the 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 spark to actually get the book written was the event with uh, Chris Ducker and Pat Flynn. But what at what point when I guess it was when you, I'm assuming it was when you were a principal. I assume that that was I, I assume that that was your final stage in in the education field. Can I is that right? No, actually, I went back to the classroom in and out of principalship several times, which I think okay. was another great thing for me. That's interesting. That's so that's so unlike most people in the industry. It's like once you hit the administrative side, you you very rarely see anyone go back. Yeah. Um, which it was the greatest, greatest move for me. I mean, one, because I realized, one, principals have a really hard job that just no one knows until they're one. Um, and two, principals really use, lose touch quickly with what happens once they leave. Um, and I just became a really a confidant of a lot of principals who, even though I wasn't one anymore, could trust me and knew that I understood. So it was a really great position to be in, actually. A helpful position, I should say. Leading from behind as opposed to in front. Um, so I just wanted to figure out how could I excel this learning? I didn't want to, I didn't want, I was, for a while I thought, maybe I should go back to school and be like, do something else. Like, how do you get out of teaching without people thinking, oh, you're a teacher, how nice, you know? Like, they don't really think you have much to offer. You're like, well, yeah. that's so nice. I'm glad you're doing it. I wouldn't want to do it kind of thing. It's like, good, it's like good, for you, good for you. Stay over there and talk to the two-year, you know, talk to the eight-year-olds and okay. So, and everyone thinks they know about teaching because everyone's been to school. So everyone thinks they know exactly how it would be. So anyways, it's sort of like this thing. It's, it's, it's noble, but it's not really valuable kind of thing. So I wanted to figure out how do I just leap from here to there? And I, I, I really built a whole system around mentorship. How do I get mentored into this new role? Because that's, that to me is the biggest leap. Um, so I didn't know that I would be a book coach, to be honest. I wasn't trying to do that. I was just trying to be um, a learner. And so I didn't know that this leap would be this until I went to that one day business breakthrough because, um, I had tried lots of things. I tried doing online businesses. Uh, I owned a fitness gym at one point uh, for a few years. I, um, own a shaved ice, you know, business. I, I just tried to figure out what it was and online kind of scared me because I didn't trust people. I felt like a lot of people were scamming people or oh, sure. being dishonest. And I just didn't like that nature of it. It's and all strangers. Like it's it. all strangers. Yeah. And it's I all, it's all, yeah. I didn't, I didn't feel comfortable like trying to be something I wasn't, but I didn't know how to be me online. So, 
um, I was struggling. I just didn't know and I didn't have the confidence to, to create something. Um, anyhow, so I, how did I know I had something worth creating that I could turn into it? It was when um, I started helping people like the boss mom or I started to help pe- people started asking me, how do you do this? How do you write a book? How did you write your book so fast? And it, it really was really when Pat Flynn said, will you help me write my book? Uh, that I knew that I was in my right space because I didn't have a website. I didn't have, I mean, for the first two years of my coaching business, I didn't even have anything. Uh, it was just a referral from people hearing that I did a really good job at helping them write books. Um, so yeah, I think it was just settling into something I could still do really well, which was communicate and help, um, which is why I stayed in teaching for so long. Got it. Yeah. And speak, speaking of communication, you have a podcast as well that you just launched, right? Correct. It's called Born to Write, which is basically talking a lot about the things you've been asking me. Where do these ideas come from? Why do people actually write? Why do so many people have it inside of them to want to write a book? What's this innate human desire that 80% of people you meet want to write a book, but just haven't, right? There's just, to me, it's fascinating, the idea of telling stories, um, whether it be fiction or nonfiction, but there's just the idea of wanting to be heard. And I think a great deal of it has to do with the thing we talked about earlier that we just don't listen enough. So people feel like they're not being heard. So I don't know. There's this, 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 this primal thing about telling stories around a fire. And then there's a bigger thing about sharing who you really are and making a difference. So it's a podcast that has brand new, um, reader or sorry, uh, writers and people who've written books and those who are really seasoned and talk about their craft. Yeah, that's great. I'm going to, I'm going to put a link to the show in the, uh, in the show notes. Um, and just by the way, for anybody that's listening, we, we keep bouncing back and forth with this name, Pat Flynn, but for anyone that's listening, that isn't aware, uh, Pat Flynn is the creator of the smart passive income, uh, website. There's a blog that he started back in 2008 actually has a really great story of how he ended up launching it back in 2008 on there. Um, and he also has the smart passive income podcast that both Azul and I, are fans of. And, uh, that's actually where the two of us connected is we're both sort of in the smart passive income Facebook echo chamber, um, which is sort of how we came across each other and, uh, heard that we were both starting podcasts at roughly around the same time as is launching a little, uh, right about a month after mine is launching. Um, so that's just a quick, quick, background of who who it is that we keep talking about back and forth as if everyone that's listening knows who we're talking about um so okay so i i know i don't want i want to be respectful of your time so i don't want to keep you on the line too much longer um but i just wanted to ask you for a, a little bit of tactical advice you've you have done two things particularly interesting to me that I think the people that are listening to the show could hear you a have written a book from scratch and B you have stood up on a stage at a TEDx event. You can feel free to pick or feel free to address both issues. But for someone that's starting from scratch, that's interested in one or both of those types of opportunities or situations, what would you say would be the first couple of steps that they could do to sort of start heading in that, to head in that direction? It's like, Hey, I've always found Ted talks to be fascinating. How on earth do they pick these people? Like where do these people come from? Why was it, why was it 
Azul giving the speech and not Jim Smith, his next door neighbor, who was also a teacher, who was also, you know, working in the same, you know, L.A. schools, who was like, how was that you? Um, Not to sound like I'm biasing which one I'd like to hear more about. But yeah, like how 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 does that how does that happen? I'm I'm curious. I don't know. I legitimately don't know. I'm very curious. Well, two things. I think the authorship lends you a opportunity that other things don't. Okay. That's one thing because it's easy to be introduced as this is Azul. He's a teacher. It's different sure. to be introduced. This is Azul. He's an author. Sure. Everybody knows a teacher. Yeah. Right. So there's just the idea that it be, it's sort of the, the modern day business card of the, you know, you, they didn't ask to see my resume at a TEDx or, or they, they were just intrigued that I was an author with the message. And, I, I sort of did it differently. I don't really know the traditional path for how to become a TEDx speaker. I got to be honest. So I was uh, referred to by another TEDx speaker who told the organizer that, hey, you should talk to this guy, Azul. He has a pretty good message he's working on for a new book about all these quotes he's collected from students about what makes a good teacher great. I think you really should talk to him. And that's really it. And it just happened to be Charlie Hohen who is a good friend of mine, who was uh, his mentor of mine. Um, Charlie Hohen was, you know, Tim Ferriss' first employee. He worked for him as the director of special projects for three years. We just happened to be friends, and uh, he knows of my work. So uh, the name Cher was the biggest factor. The guy said, great, I'll talk to him. Um, and the guy, and I spoke, you know, his name is Freddie. We spoke for about an hour on Skype. And after that, he's like, great, why don't you come? And that was it. It was, it was amazing because I didn't know that that would happen. It was definitely something I would love to have done someday, but I didn't really know about the process. Sure. I spent a lot more time working on speaking, you know, since then, but it was definitely, I had not spoken a TEDx stage before. And I think for me, I build everything around my relationships. Who can I serve? How can I help them? And with that comes a lot of reciprocity because I've always been a really good friend, a, a good connector. Um, when an opportunity came, that person said, look, I, I think this would be good for this person. Um, and that's really how it happened. I, I, you know, people said, Oh, I know lots of people, but no one invites me to do that. I'm like, okay, knowing lots of people is different than being somebody who's super valuable, uniquely valuable in your way. Right. So sure. Um, and not only that, but they paid for me to fly there. They paid for all my accommodations. I was living in Shanghai at the time. So it wasn't like close to Dominican Republic. Um, so all of that was sort of the extent of a relationship. And I don't think I had any, any f- footage or real or evidence that I was actually a good speaker, which is, you know, I think a big risk on their part, but I think they trusted that this person's word but if he says it and he's one of our best speakers, we're going to trust him. Um, so, yeah, that, that's how it happened. I wish I had more advice, but that's how it came out. Completely unrelated tangent because you just because of something that you just brought up that I've been noticing as a pattern throughout the conversation. You're living in Lisbon right now. Correct. You mentioned Shanghai. You mentioned New York. You mentioned L.A. You mentioned Texas. 
you get around. <laughs> what what how are how are you able to get around so much? I mean that that's something that's fascinating to me. There there's so few outside of people that are purely online business people like everybody's heard the term, you know, digital nomads, like outside of people that have those that type of work, how are you able to move around so much? Like there's you there's family, you mentioned that you've got kids that were in school. Um, and obviously, you know, with them getting out and go, going into college, that obviously makes things that would make things easier, effective right now. But you're mentioning things that were happening in the past, meaning when they're still in school. How is that? Mm-hmm. How are you able to pull that off? Well, I, I wanted to, since the kids were in middle school, travel the world. I just didn't know how it would happen. I really didn't. But I wish I would have taken the leap sooner and maybe worked for an international school or something and just did it, except, except for I just didn't have the guts. But I think, so that was my first step, I want, making the intention, I want to do this. Um, and telling my kids, this is what's going to happen. And they're like, okay, whatever that means. Um, but I got offered, I, I became a really good at something inside of education, and that was to be a, sort of a, a lead in project-based learning. I knew a lot about project-based learning. And worked for an innovative charter school um, in San Diego that I was able to coach schools from around the world, from Barcelona, Canada, at the time China, and Europe. So uh, I would often help people and sometimes get invited to go to these other places to help for a short time. But I never really lived in another country like that. So I got reached out to, I didn't apply for anything. Someone reached out from a school in Shanghai and said, look, we really need someone to come help us with project-based learning. Would you be willing to take a two-year contract to come help us? And my daughter was a senior at that time, or junior, going to be a senior. And I asked her, you know, would you want to do this? Would you be open to this? And um, even before I asked my husband, I was like, you know, I don't want to, if she says no, I'm not going to do it because she's a senior. I, I could ruin her, her relationship with me for a while if I just pulled at her school. She said, yes. So we went, we went to this, lived in Shanghai and I got to travel and speak and do things in Asia that I wouldn't have done if I would have stayed in San Diego. It seemed counterintuitive because at the time I was coaching Pat Flynn and I didn't know if I can coach him remotely, but he was okay with that. And so it worked. So I didn't have to stop doing my work digitally with people that actually were in San Diego. Um, So it started the beginning, the process of me starting to be able to see the world. That's really the first step. And, um, now that's really, I still coach people remotely because of that first step. I would have never thought, cause all my early clients were in person. I'd show up, we'd sit down, we'd work, we'd have meetings, you know, and it wasn't until I took that leap that I said, you know what, this is working just as well via Skype than just about anything else. Um, there's some clients I've never even met face to face. So yeah, that's sort of how it happens. And I get asked to speak I'm in one country, someone hears about me, and I get invited to speak, which was another benefit of being a TEDx speaker, obviously. Hmm. No, it is. It's, it's fa- the the thought of that is fascinating. My my wife and I are considering the same a similar a similar sort of a exploratory mindset. So we're uh, 
we're, I'm, I'm, I myself speaking completely selfishly audience, my apologies, but yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm always just fascinated to hear when people are able to actually pull off that lifestyle, especially that lifestyle with kids. In our case, we've got two children that are under the age of three. So it's, it's a, so, and it's so funny because you talk you talk to some people they'll say oh well that's you know that's the easiest time to do it they're not in school yet or they're like oh well that's the hard that's the hardest time to do it because they're just finally getting established with friends and friends mean everything to them and when they leave they leave, you know they seem to lose their whole world and whatever it just everybody has an opinion and it's you know it's it's hard it's hard to navigate sometimes so it's always interesting to hear I, I um, think it's mindset because that's you know, obviously taking your daughter abroad her senior year doesn't seem like a good idea. <laughs> but the mindset shifted for all of us. And now wherever we are, they're like, where are we spending the holidays again? Because like two two winters ago, we spent a holiday in Provence with some friends living in the south of France. And I you know, love Provence. I've been there. Oh, it's great. So now they're, they're more like, so where are we going now? Like they, they're not as devastated by like, well, where's home? They just know that, you know, We'll be somewhere else. And they'll be like, hey, can we go to Cuba? Okay, sure. Hey, what about, you know, New Zealand? I'd love to do that. Okay, great. We'll try to work that out, you know. Um, it's just, you know, I don't own a car anymore. We still, you know, two or three cars in our family and a house and all these things that I couldn't just up and leave them because I have this. But sure. really, because I don't, now I can. Sure. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, and I, and like I said earlier, I'm, I want to be respectful of your time, so I, I'll, I'll, we'll, we can go ahead and wrap up there. Uh, one, one question that I have for you, it's a, a question that I like to ask all the guests, is, and it's a question that I sort of stole from you know the uh, the Tim Ferriss show, just because I find the the question and the answers to be fascinating and very applicable to small moves and what people are trying to do. Um, so, and I'll give you a couple of examples if you need it, but the question is what purchase have you made in, in the recent past of a hundred dollars or less that has probably made the most dramatic impact on your life? It could be in your business life. It could be, it could be something that keeps all of your stuff together in your bags while you're traveling that you've just been dealing with stress, stress with for the previous couple of years before that, whatever it is, like it could be anything. It could be a phone app that lets you build your clients easier. It could be anything like, but let's cap it at a hundred bucks or less. Like what can you think of that you've bought recently? That's been the that's had the most dramatic impact on you. Uh, honestly, something my husband bought for us was a, uh, traveling yoga mat because I think for a while at the detriment of my health, I didn't, I had excuses for why I couldn't go to the gym or I couldn't, you know, meditate or because I didn't have time or space and my yoga mat, I can take wherever I go and I could use an app. I could, uh, find a place within any space I'm in and, I, it's great because now I don't have to worry about, oh, there's no gym here. Like I have excuses for why I don't go to the gym, but it really isn't because there isn't a gym, right? Even in my hometown, <laughs> it was more of like, oh, this is my good excuse. Yep. Uh, it's too far. I'm working too late. The kids had this. So yoga mats took away the excuses and it's probably the best investment. And it's a little, you know, we have one at fold so we can pack it. We, we travel around the world with a carry-on bag, so we don't have a lot. Um, so it has, to, it's definitely a big thing to consider. But I think that's the one thing that's made the most change recently. 
Yeah, I need to have you back on the show again to talk about just the traveling. That, that's that er, that area is just absolutely fascinating to me. People that are able to move around with so little stuff. Um, that that's a that's a whole conversation in and of itself. Is there a particular brand or for that yoga mat that you can recall, or do you, I mean, do you happen to remember or no? You know, I, I could look at the brand. It's just I, it's funny. I was mentioning. I was like, I wish there was a yoga mat that folds because all the ones I've seen you roll. And I was like, I can't fit that in a suitcase. And I was going to say, it's like, well, they, there's like, they all can travel, can't they? When you, when you first mentioned it, it was like, well, they're, they're pretty light. They can all, they can all really travel. But then, yeah, if you think about it, when it's, when it's rolled up, it's like, it's actually pretty big if you're not carrying around that much stuff. Yeah, it's, it's long. And it, if you're traveling with just a regular, you know, small bag you can fit in the overhead, uh, where does it go? You know, um, uh, so I, I, I could maybe look up the, the map for you, but it's, it's a nice little mat and a little towel that goes with it. You can get it to me later. I'll put, I'll put it for everybody in the show notes. Yeah, I, I think, and I'll talk more about that, what it was like to move from living a three-bedroom, two-bath house in San Diego, paring down our stuff to two suitcases and moving to Shanghai and making a commitment we'll never own more than two suitcases worth of stuff again. Um, is a big shift. So we left some of that stuff at my mom's house and came here with a carry-on, which is, you know, two huge suitcases where your life is into a carry-on for three months is definitely a huge shift. So be glad to talk about that some other time. Yeah, no, that would be great. Um, yeah, no, we'll, we'll, we'll go ahead and schedule, we'll, we'll schedule that soon after this. Um, <laughs> great. All right, well, no, Azul, Azul, this has been great. Um, is if the people that are listening to this want to reach out to you, uh, directly or just sort of follow what you're doing, you know, what's the best way for them to do that? Like we mentioned the podcast, you obviously have your website. Um, are you on social media? Like do you, are you on social media as well? Like what's the best way for them to find you? Yeah. I reach out on, um, Azul Taronis on all the social media, you know, Facebook's a great place to reach out to me. Um, send a note. I respond to everybody who reaches out to me. Um, and yeah, that's, that's probably the best way. You can follow me on coachazul.com to see what I'm up to writing wise. And, um, yeah, I'm always open to new friends. So people feel free. And obviously there's the podcast, the link to that, the link to that on the, the iTunes link for that will be in the show notes as well. Great. All right, Azul, this has been great. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Jason. Yeah, man. Hey everyone, this is Jason again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Small Moves Podcast. I really had fun chatting with Azul today. Um, I hope you guys really got a lot from that conversation. I know I really did. He's a fascinating guy with a phenomenal past. He really has dedicated his life to really serving his clients that really want to try and get their message out. And I really enjoyed hearing about how he was able to do that for himself first and then able to now help other people do the same thing. Uh, do one quick thing before you end up uh, taking off. If you could go and follow us on the community Facebook page for Small Moves, easiest way to get to that is smallmoves.co forward slash community. You can find the community Facebook page there. Just like it, follow it, comment. Let me know what you thought about this episode of the show. And if you had any other suggestions of people that you think might be great matches for the style of the interviews that I do for the show, please leave me a comment there or shoot me a direct message through there. Um, all the direct messages sent uh, through the small moves page do come to me. So I review each and every one of them. 
So go ahead and make any suggestions that you might have, if any. And also uh, follow me on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash Jason Hertzberger or just at Jason Hertzberger. I look forward to next episode coming up uh, starting this week. Uh, as I promised with the introduction episode just about eight weeks ago, I am officially changing to a twice a week format starting this week. So with this episode of Azul today, Tuesday, the next episode will be coming out this Friday. And then also, again, the following Tuesday, back to Tuesday. If you have any comments about that change in format, I would love to hear your perspective. Again, I'm doing this show for you at the audience. So if you've got any feedback on that, both good or bad, please don't hesitate to shoot me a message on Twitter or Facebook. And just let me know what you think. I'm really curious to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Small Moves Podcast. And I will talk to you next time around. You've got this.